everybody, and welcome to Let's Pod This. Uh, it's Friday afternoon, April the 12th. Uh, my name is Scott Melson. I'm one of your hosts that's with you every week, and right now you're thinking, where's Andy? He usually does this part. Uh, Andrew is out of the office today wearing one of his many other hats, so you are stuck with me driving driving the ship. But you are very fortunate because you're not stuck with me alone. I have two special guests here with me. Uh, guest hosting today, sitting over in the co-pilot's seat, we have all the way from Maine, America, we have Effie Craven. But I'm a naturalized Okie. That's very true. Thanks for coming, Effie. I'm so excited to be here. I think I'm the pod's number one fan. And uh, I think this is a huge honor. Well, we were super excited that you were both available and said yes. So <laughs> thanks. We also have a friend of the show who's been on... At least once or twice. Yeah, I think a couple times. Yeah, we've got State Representative Jason Dunnington, uh, proudly represents House District 88, does a great job, I know, because I'm one of his constituents. So thanks for being here, Rob. I came in just in time to make Effie's uh, daughter scream. So You did. I've, uh, I've only known Cora personally for about 15 minutes, and she's been absolutely angelic in that oh. whole time until you got here. So I promise I'm good with babies. I, I really do. He so. seemed great with her. Yeah. She's just tired. I don't know. Maybe. Is it, the, is it the beard? Is that the deal? Maybe. I don't, I don't know. But um, Well, we have an ambitious agenda to get through today. We've got uh, our, our regular news roundup, which I have pledged will take like five minutes, no more, um, unless... I'm wrong, which happens, as you guys know. And then uh, we're going to go through several issues that the legislature has confronted, or in some cases not confronted, kind of see where we stand. We'll ask Representative Dunnington to give us his thoughts on what's going to happen moving forward, and uh, we'll just see where it takes us. You guys ready? Sounds Sounds great. All right. So first off, in our news roundup today, we've got an article from Nondoc. The United States Senate has confirmed uh, State Supreme Court Justice Patrick Patrick Wyrick to serve as a district judge in the U.S. Western District of Oklahoma. Uh, He was confirmed by a party line vote, 53 to 47, 53 R's in favor, 47 Dems against. Um, You may be asking yourself, like, why is this news? Um, It's for a couple of reasons. So one, this creates two Supreme Court vacancies that our new governor, uh, Governor Stitt, is going to get to fill. If you want to know how that process works, check out our episode on judicial nominees from about six months ago. And we talk about how that happens. Um, This is also an interesting case because this is one of the first vacancies um, that was confirmed using an expedited Senate rules process that was put in place by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell last week uh, that he talks about was, you know, the inevitable consequence of obstruction from the, from the minority. But uh, that piece is in Nondoc, and it just talks about this, the significance of the appointment and Justice Wyrick and his background. So, I don't know, guys. Thoughts? You know, I don't know Patrick Wyrick, but I do think it's really impressive that he is only 38. Right? He's kind of killing it. Right. Like yeah, I mean he apparently was on a one of the short lists for U.S. Supreme Court. Um, I, I have gotten to meet him a couple of times. Very sharp individual. You talk to people here about uh, Justice Wyrick and their opinion of him, and usually some of the first words that come out of their mouth are very studious, uh, very adept. And so I, I think he's taking his job very seriously in his young career being on the bench and you know he was nominated uh, back in the fall as well and when the senate adjourned and the new senate came in he had to be re-nominated again so it's not that this came out of nowhere and was completely uh, unannounced in this area of the world i mean he had already been appointed one time so 
And, you know, I guess at, in this world of politics, I'm not surprised that it came down on party lines either. I, I think had the script been flipped and Democrats were in power in the Senate and they had nominated a, a Democrat justice uh, or attorney from Oklahoma for this post, it probably would have been a very similar partisan vote. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And I think I think your comments about Justice Weirich, they echo what I've heard. I mean, the first time that I was really exposed to him or kind of heard about him was last summer. He was a newly installed justice, a relatively new, I think he'd been there less than a year, on the state Supreme Court. But he authored the opinion that overturned the tobacco fee, right, and called it a tax. May it, um, may it rest in peace. Yeah, and that was, uh, that was, that was I mean, I, I, I thought it was interesting at that time just because it's like, man, we've got some justices that have been on the court for several years. He's the newest one. He's very young. This is a, I think, pretty, conse- seems like a pretty consequential decision that the, the court is taking, and he got it. Maybe that's not a right, not, not a correct read of the situation, but. The millennials are rising. That's right. Millennials, uh, millennials for better or worse, are going to save the world. You know, the interesting thing about that is that we have current legislation uh, in Oklahoma that will change how uh, or where, if you will, justices can come from. So what the real interesting thing will be is there's talk that there may be another opening as well on the court. And you could have as many as three openings on the state Supreme court that will have a new process with which they would be filled. And I think that's very interesting that, that, that yes, you are a hundred percent right. All right. Well, that piece is on non-doc. We'll throw it up on the blog. Enjoy. Uh, next up, we've got a piece from our friends over at the journal record who always do a great job as always. If you don't subscribe, you should, you're doing it wrong. So, uh, <laughs> this is a piece that is talking about house bill 2150. This passed the Senate judiciary uh, committee, uh, seven to five earlier this week. So this is, we could honestly have an entire show talking just about this bill and its implications. Essentially what this is dealing with. And you guys jump me in if I get the, sum, the summation incorrect, this is essentially saying that the at the s- municipalities do not have the right to regulate certain aspects of industrial practice. Is that right? Like, and it's written mostly for like oil and gas industry. So, so the city of Oklahoma City or the city of Weatherford or the city of whatever can't put regulations in place that maybe are stricter than what the state has. Jason, is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Um, so this is a really interesting bill. Um, for one thing, there's there's people like people on both sides that you wouldn't necessarily expect. So OIPA, the Oklahoma Independent Petroleum Association, is very much in favor of this. Um, OIPA has traditionally been the kind of energy industry trade group here in Oklahoma. But in the last couple of years, they've had a competitor, the OEPA, which uh, I think they would say they represent more... Uh, smaller production houses, more traditional vertical producers rather than kind of the long laterals that the big names are famous for. They're not in support of this. They think it opens up a a hornet's nest. What do you guys think? Yeah, you go. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, you answer that one. No, I I think you, you laid out the argument really well uh, as far as that goes. I mean, for me, it's probably less about what the industry is and more about um, the, the, people that are closest to the politics in front of them. So we should never, the state should never be levying um, uh, policy onto municipalities in a way in which someone that lives in that municipality has no voice anymore with their own city council or their mayor. Uh, I I just think that's a slippery slope. So, um, you know, the state's job is to promote the state and to make 
the process as complete as possible. Every time that the state comes in and says, we're going to preempt municipalities' ability to do anything because we know better, you're really, um, you're, you're putting municipalities at a disadvantage in order to compete with other municipalities in the region. I mean, I got to promise you that Dallas-Fort Worth is competing for our 24 to 35-year-olds in everything that we do. Uh, same thing with Kansas City. And so Oklahoma City and Tulsa need to be able to compete in that way as well. And anytime the state steps in and puts preemption that overlays the top of them, I just think that it makes it more difficult. It does seem to be preemptively kind of burning the bridge with municipalities too, that they don't trust them to handle it right or trust them to handle the situation when it comes up. It's like, we're just going to go ahead and decide for you. I totally agree. And I, I also, I think this is interesting from a philosophical perspective. And, you know, I think that we can see sometimes these dynamics play out, they play out on the left, they play out on the right. But this is one of those things that it's, it's frustrating because like traditionally you might hear, you know, the Republicans as a, as a party, generally speaking, I think tend to advocate for local control, right? They, Republicans, I think most most people would agree, Republicans advocate for government to be done at as local a level as possible. And so it just kind of raises my eyebrows a little bit when you see legislation being pushed by a party that's built on that philosophy that doesn't allow for local control, right? And we see this with minimum wage. We see it with this legislation. We see it when there's, you know, sometimes even with firearms legislation. And so that's one thing that just like as a, as a philosophical point, like frustrates me. I don't like it when people aren't consistent. And that's not to say I do think though that it's, you know, this is a problem for lots of states besides Oklahoma and lots of issues. So it's not just energy or firearms. We see this with sugar sweetened beverages and plastic sure, straw yeah. bands and plastic bag bands and all right. kinds of stuff like that where states try to step in ahead of time. Yeah, I was going to say, you can't really make it Republican per se. Right. De- Democrats De- do it too. Democrats yeah. have done this um, throughout history as well. And so I, you know, I guess it comes down to, do you think that local control is a real thing or is it just a talking point for you politically? Sure. Sure. So. Yeah. No, I think that's that's probably the best way to put it. So and when the issue is convenient. Yeah. Check that out on the journal record, and we will keep trucking along here. Our our next piece is again. We could have we could have a whole podcast series, uh, not just a single episode on this next. Piece. Do it. This is from uh, this is from the frontier, and and again we can talk about it as much as you want. Um, this is a piece from the frontier that says uh, talk about uncertainty over how the state's settlement with Purdue Pharmaceuticals will impact other lawsuits. So um, if you want the full background on this, please check out the episode we released yesterday. Andy and I were lucky enough. We sat down with Attorney General Mike Hunter for about 45 minutes on Wednesday um, and got to ask him pretty much anything we wanted to about uh, the opioid lawsuit and the settlement. Um, the quick background is that Oklahoma is suing a number, the state of Oklahoma is suing a number of pharmaceutical companies as it relates to opioid production, marketing, and prescribing practices. Um, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, which is the manufacturer of OxyContin, uh, is kind of unique in certain ways from some of these other companies. And they have individually settled with the state of Oklahoma for $270 million. Um, the subject of that settlement and how those funds are going to be used is, uh, that is the subject of some controversy <laughs> at the moment. Some um, controversy. Some controversy. Like um, this article is really not examining that aspect of it. It's really more looking at has the fact that the state of Oklahoma settled with this company have implications for the, I think, literally, certainly dozens, if not hundreds, of municipalities in Oklahoma 
that have sued Purdue and other companies on their own. Um, and so that's really what the frontier piece is talking at. I don't know, guys, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's kind of wait and see when it comes to that regard. I mean, I could do a whole show on why I think what went down wasn't done correctly. Uh, but we're past that point at, at, you know, at this stage, I think that there are still things that the state needs to do in order to ensure that there's actual transparency and accountability with the newly formed private foundation that we're about to put $193 million of our money into. Seems like a lot. To have zero say over. Yeah. Imagine if any legislator said, we're going to appropriate $193 million to a private foundation that the public has no purview over whatsoever. Nobody would be okay with that. It's, but it's interesting too, in light of how the legislature often treats TSET, right? Like that they, they are this special entity and the legislature often wants to go after their money and criticize how they spend all of that money. And it's not a dramatically different situation, right? It's a big settlement. And, it but, was a big but settlement. But TSET's pretty transparent about what they do and how they're governed. And Yeah, there was a definite difference in the way that TSET was set up mm-hmm. and the way that this private foundation was set up. So TSET, Attorney General Edmondson at the time, was working hand-in-hand with the legislature mm-hmm. on what the settlement would be and how it would go down. And then the legislature put forward a state question in order to constitutionally protect the money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here we are nearly 20 years later and T-SET's got a corpus of about $1.4 billion that we use money off of to benefit the health and wellness of our citizens. Mm-hmm. This is a private foundation that the money was put into a bridge fund so that it wouldn't be put into treasury that's overseen by three unelected Oklahomans mm-hmm. that were appointed by the attorney general. And the money will sit in there for six months until it goes into a private foundation of which will have no say over how it's spent. And if they don't spend it the way the settlement says they should, the state of Oklahoma is on the hook to pay it back. There's a lot of questions there, but that's not what this article is. (laughs) (laughs) This article is something different. Yeah. This is asking the question, essentially, are like counties and municipalities going to be out in the cold? Like, essentially, the question is, as I understand it in my... uh, I, I don't have a great legal mind. Um, is Does the fact that Purdue settled with the state, right, does the state's lawsuit supersede the county and municipality lawsuits, meaning that um, is the attorney general's lawsuit and settlement, whether he intended it to be this way or not, does it essentially count for all those other entities, right? Like... Does it was he suing on behalf of all of those specific entities mm-hmm. or only the citizens of Oklahoma? And I have no idea what how you go about answering that question. I don't think so. I think that the cities and municipalities still have well, it's really municipalities, counties still have the opportunity to sue Purdue Pharma. I think the difference will be that now that they've already settled a big number with the state of Oklahoma and they've set up this private foundation that it looks like maybe a few family members of the Sackler family could end up being on the foundation board, but we'll see. The future will tell us that. But I think the real difficulty will be that there will now be, because there's already been one that's gone forward, you'll probably end up in a scenario where there will be a, a large number where Purdue will settle for. Easy, buddy. That's uh, a <laughs> party foul. Where Purdue will settle for, let's say they settle for a billion dollars or, you know, let's say they settle for $10 billion. It'll be all of these cities, municipalities, and other states that have not yet received something from Purdue that will all be in the same pool to fight that out for. 
Yeah. So I, I think that's where the issue will come down. That's what it, that's what it seems like. So. Can you help me understand what you said about members of the Sackler family being on the board? Yeah, so that could be a whole other podcast, but they're, the Sackler family is giving $75 million to this private foundation, mm-hmm. and there's a running joke from other people in in the settlement, other companies, Johnson & Johnson and others, that have started to call the state's newly created foundation the Sackler Family Foundation. So it's ta- they're being able to put the money in without paying taxes on it. And it could be seen as a tax shelter and we have no control over it. So we'll mm-hmm. see how it works out. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I asked attorney general Hunter those questions directly after we quit recording the podcast um, about those two, two specific issues. And at least in terms of the Sackler family, his contention is that that like will not happen and that there will be safeguards to keep the Zackler family from being on the board of the foundation and directing the funds. I don't know what those are, um, but that's what that's called the legislature. <laughs> that's what he would say. So. so yeah, it's kind of, I did this and I wanted to. And mm-hmm. so now you guys yeah. fix it. Sure. Which is a great way to govern. No mm-hmm. problems could possibly come from, you this. know, I will say this on the record and, and I think he knows this, but I, I like Attorney General Mike Hunter. Yeah. We have always gotten along. Um, I think he's a stand-up person. Um, I enjoy, like, his company. I think he's, he was He was great to talk to. I think he's witty and smart. Um, I just, I flat disagree with him on this issue. Sure. Um, and I think that's okay. I think mm-hmm. that's part of the process of democracy. That's but called it government. It doesn't take away <laughs> from, you know, my feelings for him as a person or sure. his job you know, otherwise sure. it just on this issue, just, I flat disagree. Awesome. Good talk. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Moving, moving on next up. Um, and these last two, um, again, we can talk about them as much or as little as you guys want They're I put them on the list really almost more like mentions than anything else. Um, this is a piece called, we just don't know why it came to this. This is from the Washington post. And this really, um, this is a, I mean, I think if nothing else, this is an incredibly powerful piece of journalism. Um, it profiles a woman and her family uh, in eastern Oklahoma. Um, the subject of the piece, she actually recently passed away from uh, alcoholic liver failure, alcoholic hepatitis. Um, and it just kind of profiles, it profiles her, but the context is looking specifically at how across America, but especially in Oklahoma, the difference in life expectancy from county to county, municipality to municipality, and how specifically, um, in this piece, white women are dying at increasing rates, like their life expectancy is actively going down, particularly in rural communities. And it talks about kind of what some of the factors are that might contribute to that. And I mean, like that, you know, we I try not to talk about this a lot on the show, but like, as you guys know, in my non let's pod this life, I'm a primary care doctor. Um, and this was a piece that really resonated with me because like, like, I don't know this lady, mm-hmm. but like, I know this lady, mm-hmm. right? Like I have had this person like as a patient and I've seen them die from alcoholic hepatitis and I've seen what that's like and I've talked with their families. Um, and anyway, and I just, that's really all I have to say about it. It was, it's a very, very, moving and powerful piece and I think is a good reminder for those of us that live in places like Oklahoma City or Tulsa or you know even more kind of rural communities like Guthrie that are undergoing some you know somewhat of a revitalization that there are 
places across our state that really are are hurting. Mm-hmm. I think that this piece and the the final piece that we'll talk about both tied in together that you know, and tying back even to the 2016 election, that there is a real sense of desperation in a lot of communities in America, and people are really suffering. And the the one criticism I would have about this piece is I, you know, maybe they did, I would hope that they had some Oklahoma-based journalist kind of read over it, because I did find some of the language describing the, the town of Tecumseh and Pottawatomie County to be, like, very dramatic, yes, like, that's... you know, the the tumbleweed blew across the desolate plains right. and it's kind of like okay well it's not really like that i understand what they were going for but the the bigger point of the piece again i think is that people are really suffering in a lot of communities and you know we hear about it on the news and we hear about inequality all the time but this piece i think really got to the heart of how it impacts a family yeah yeah absolutely my my inner sociologist is all like you know you know, beaming right now <laughs> when it comes to this stuff. But, you know, I, I think the 2020 census is going to be very telling um, in our country about what's happening as far as a demographic basis from county to county. And I think what you're going to see is a further exodus from rural communities into urban communities. I think you're going to see a further decline in um, those that would be considered in the middle class. You're going to have a larger sector of people that fit squarely in this class that we would consider the working class, those that, you know, live paycheck to paycheck and one bad medical emergency puts them and their family in bankruptcy. Um, and you know, without significant change in policy from a national level, that's where our country's going right now. I mean, we're the most financially stratified that we've ever been in the history of our country. Yeah. That's not a good thing for us. No. No, 100%. And that affects health and that affects wellness and that affects family life and so many other things. I mean, it really comes down to your ability to earn for your family and your ability to take care of your family. And, and that has deteriorated decade after decade after decade. And it's not getting better. Well, and there, there's new data out from the National Low Income Housing Coalition showing that nowhere in America can you get a two bedroom apartment on minimum wage. And so I think it really speaks to, you know, housing inequality, wage inequality, the fact that having health, access to health care is tied with having a good paying job that has benefits. Um, and those jobs don't necessarily exist in rural communities in a lot of places. Um, I think that you're right. We need bold national level policy change to, to really address the problem. Preach. 100 percent all right last up this is also a really this is a really fascinating piece uh from the folks over at city lab um citylab.com check them out it's an online online publication they do really great work this is uh, the title of the piece is uh, a national atlas of neighborhood change but it's really looking at mapping gentrification from gentrification to decline how neighborhoods really change and so um, the it's a very it's a long form piece. There are lots of graphs that are super exciting and interactive maps. Um, but you can go to your location, you can go to your zip code, your city, and you can kind of look and see what has happened there over you know the last. 10, 15, 20 years um, in terms of demographic change, you know, uh, investment, et cetera, et cetera. So um, if that is something that you find interesting, and it probably is because you're listening to this show, um, you should definitely check it out. Uh, thoughts on that last one, guys? I, I do know a Professor Jarkowski, Paul Jarkowski, did this about two decades ago, and he used GIS mapping data, and he overlaid it over census track data to start to look at and he did it through a history of i think 1900 up until 2000 um 
and it w- it's fascinating when you look at um, you know census tract data based off of race, based off ethnicity, based off of socioeconomic status. You can find out a lot about your communities uh, just looking at um, detailed data, and it'll give you a better picture. I mean, people always talk about from a political position like mine, they always talk about, well, my district thinks this. Well, what do you know about your district that you actually represent? And I think many representatives and senators would be shocked if they actually looked at detailed information about the data of the people that they represent. Oftentimes we know about the people that are the most noisy to us. I was going to say when they, sometimes when they say my district, they mean my donors. Your donors, or, or they mean the five <laughs> or, or the, the, the people one, who are really involved. The, the people, one person that calls you seven times a week. Yeah. That, or they know the people they go to church with. Yep. Or the people that, that they work with in their other career. And so they are insulated in silos of information that they believe is a, a, um, a normal representation of everyone that's in the district they represent. And it's not even close. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think articles like this, I think when when social scientists take data like this and break it down in a way this kind of raw data is so important for politicians if they'll take a look at it and actually pay attention to it Mm -hmm. and it will help them have a much clearer picture of the actual people they represent not just the people that they know in their social circle Meet the sociologist turned state representative, everybody. (laughs) That's, uh, that's, that, that is, that was not just representative Jason Dunnington. That was Dr. Jason Dunnington right there. Oh, I I forget you're a doctor. So so many titles that you could have. All right. Actually, Uh, doesn't help me in politics at all, right? It doesn't hurt though, right? It doesn't hurt on stuff like this, but (laughs) it certainly doesn't help. I mean, no one even knew that I had a PhD the first two or three years I was elected just because I never put it on anything. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, it was the kind of thing, well, you think you're smarter than us? No, I just <laughs> have a lot more school debt than you I do. Just read <laughs> a, I just read a lot. <laughs> All right. Well, that will wrap it up for the news roundup this week. We will uh, throw everything up on the blog as per the usual, and you guys can check it out. So moving on, we've got about 35 minutes left, 35, 40 minutes left. Uh, we are going to move on to a a kind of almost like a, a lightning round legislative recap. I mean, we've got several topics here. Hopefully we'll get through most of them. It'd be great if we get through all of them. Again, all of them are stuff we could spend a whole episode talking about. And in some cases we have, but we're just going to get kind of an update on what has happened and what may or may not happen moving forward. Cool. Cool. Awesome. So first up, uh, Representative Dunnington, let's start with you because this is an issue you've worked on a lot and you're actually running one of these bills with uh, floor leader Eccles uh, in the House. Criminal justice reform. Can you let us know what's happened this session and what can we look for to happen in these last few weeks before signing die? Yeah, what's happened this session is that criminal justice reform is super popular with Oklahoma citizens. And let me restate that. It's super popular with Oklahoma citizens. What's also happened is that it's not so popular with um, district attorneys. It's not so popular with judicial branch. It's not so popular with people that have a vested interest in keeping our system the exact same way that it is right now. And so one of the most frustrating things about working on criminal justice reform is knowing that it is widely supported. And we know this because we've passed state questions on it. And we know it because we've continued to poll it. And it's gotten more popular since it passed two years ago. We know that it's what citizens want. And if 
the elected class would just put stuff out to be voted on, it would pass overwhelmingly. And so that's the frustrating part is that we have a pathway to make things better for people in our state, especially those that have been incarcerated and the families that are um, affected because of that incarceration. We have a pathway to do it. We have good, sound policy on the table to help make that happen. And it's not a silver bullet. I mean, it's not going to change everything right away. But over the next decade, two decades, what we're doing right now will change the state of Oklahoma. We just need people to let it happen. Let democracy happen. Let the people who have already said this is what they want have their voice heard and get this done. So, Do you think we're going to get uh, 780 retroactivity? I, I mean, I'm, I hope so. We're working diligently <laughs> every day for it. There's been a lot of talk about a package of bills. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of that's starting to fall apart right now. And so some of them may just kind of run on their own. But, you know, you've had a governor that's talked about in his state of the state address. I mean, he campaigned on this. The need for criminal justice reform. And you've got legislator legislature that wants to get it done. You just, it's it's bottlenecked right now. And, and we've seen this. I mean, this is Groundhog's Day. This is what happened last year and the year before and the year before that. We had good policy, thoughtful people working on it, moving through the process, got to the end of session, nothing got done. And, I mean, we've hit around the edges, but we're not doing the kind of of significant policy heavy lifting that will actually make a difference in the number of beds that are being used mm-hmm. by incarcerated persons in the state of Oklahoma, or that will really change the trajectory of what that will look like a decade from now or two mm-hmm. decades from now. And it, it, I would like to say the time is now, but the time was 10 years ago. Sure. Like we're already behind. This is, this is an issue. I mean, <laughs> I could say this about like half of the things we're talking about today. Um, and that we talk about every week, but one of the, one of the things I get really frustrated with, um, with government and, and not even government, but politics like, so in my job, right, I have to use evidence. I have to use evidence. I have to use data. And like, if we're, you know, you don't have an evidence-based treatment for every illness, but when you have an evidence-based treatment mm-hmm. or an evidence-based guideline, you're supposed to follow it, right? And if you don't follow it and then a patient has a bad outcome, there's like consequences for that, right? Like it's, it is part of our ethic and part of our practice to use the best available evidence that we can to make our decisions. And like this isn't it like criminal justice reform, there's so much data that shows that this is good policy, right? Like not only is it good from like a way like the way that we treat people as a society and giving people second chances and you know rehabilitation rather than punishment, like reducing recidivism, but there's good data that this does those things. Mm-hmm. It saves the state money, it increases economic activity because people get jobs, right? Like it's Benefits everybody. Right. The only, the only, the only reason not to do this is because, I mean, it just doesn't. It feels like we should punish them more, right? I, I like, think too that the frustration that you're expressing, you know, as as the lobbyist in the room, that's it's so frustrating when there's public support for an issue, there's bipartisan support for an issue, there's policy solutions like you're not having to come up with something from scratch. And you still can't get it done. And when you're in those conversations, you know, I've, I've never lobbied on criminal justice specifically, but when you're in those conversations with legislators and they mostly get it, and then you still don't see it move, that's really frustrating because it's like, what else do you need? The conditions are perfect. You know, I, the issue I don't think has to do with 
partisanship. It's not sure, yeah. a Democratic or yeah. Republican issue. The issue is maintaining the status quo or choosing to do something different. Sure. And because as a society, it is so much more comfortable for us to do things the way we've always done it. And it's so difficult for us to really um, encapsulate what change means for us individually, mm -hmm. as a community, as a society. And so changing the status quo is the hardest thing to do at 23rd and Lincoln. You know who talks a lot about how, uh, well, it's because we've always done it this way is never an acceptable answer to a question, you know? Never an acceptable answer to a question? Yeah, the, well, like when you say, why do we do something this way? And the answer, if the answer is, well, it's because we've always done it this way, that's never acceptable. I'm looking at you because uh, we've talked about this. Mayor Pete. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, Pete Buttigieg talks about that a lot. The millennials are rising. Uh, it's true. It's true. All right. Next up. Even though to say that I'm a Gen Xer, I'm just throwing that out there. Not, <laughs> oh, yeah. What's the oldest millennial? Like uh, 1981. Depends on so. the definition. So 38. So it depends on the definition, actually. So there's actually been some... Uh, there's some literature out that some say it starts at 81, some say it starts at 84. There's a proposal that there's actually a, a generation in between that's like 70, like like 78 to like 86, 85, 86, mm. that says that there's a, a unique generation between Gen X and Millennial, and it has to do with how old you were mm -hmm. when um, A, internet access, and B, smartphones became ubiquitous. Okay, I made it all like the way through you high school really without cell phones. Sounds yeah. like sounds like someone just needed a dissertation topic. To yeah, I was gonna say that. that somebody yeah. just thought of that. Oh, uh, <laughs> I like I like that. I like that. All right, uh, next up, uh, COLA, C O L A, cost of living adjustment. There's been some updates on this House Bill twenty three oh four, which was trying to give state retirees a four percent cost of living uh, adjustment in their pension, which they've not had in like what twelve years? Twelve years. Uh, this the this bill would have given them four percent. Uh, it passed the House, went over to the Senate, uh, kind of got whittled down to oh maybe not four, maybe that'll bankrupt the pension fund. Maybe we should do two instead. Looked kind of like two was going to pass, but then yesterday uh, the bill was uh, changed in committee, I think, and now has been sent to an actuarial study for the next year. And so I don't think we're going to see any action on COLA this session. Is that accurate? That seems accurate. And you know, the, the real, the real sad part about that is that we've sent this to the actuary for like six years now. So, Oh, I didn't know that. We know what the actuary is going to say. We already have this information. And the fact is, is that seniors, we talk about children and family all the time in Oklahoma and how important it is that we create a future that's better and brighter for them. But one of the groups that we rarely talk about that needs to be talked about is um, the elderly and those that are 65 years uh, of age or older, mm -hmm. and many of which I would I would suggest the majority of which live on fixed incomes, yeah. and that fixed income every year that fixed income has to deal with the fact that stuff costs more for them. Yep. Mm -hmm. But they're not getting more in their retirement. Something that they worked for. Something that they were promised. Because you've got some bean counters that are saying, well, if we do this now, there won't be enough for 2060. Yeah. Well, what about the people that worked their ass off mm -hmm. to get to this point? Right. And they need it for 2019. Uh, mm -hmm. And it just, it's wrong. Yeah. And a cola should absolutely have gotten done. Even if it was just 2%, it should have absolutely gotten done. It, it is embarrassing that we didn't pass a cola this year. 
strong words from Representative Dunnington. Yeah, I'm I, not going to add I'm just, on I'm anything. Just, I'm, I'm just going to leave it there. All right. Uh, next up, education. Um, so we're going to, I guess, not teach people in schools how to respond to someone having a seizure, but we are going to have somebody go through like eight hours of training to carry a gun around our kids. Is that accurate? Is it accurate? Like you're talking about two different bills, right? So, yeah, those are not part of the same bill. Like it wasn't, it wasn't either or, but that seems to be like what the outcome was. I would certainly share some of your sentiment that we should have passed a bill that would have training for teachers to deal with seizures because a child's health is very important, and having well-trained individuals in any specific location is important because it could be you're I mean you're a physician you know one one minute can be the difference yeah if you have someone that understands how to to give care for that one minute before people that have that experience are there that could be the difference yeah. in saving a life or yeah. not so I think that's important and I think that that bill should have gone forward I also understand that some of our rural communities fear the fact that because they live so far out from law enforcement being able to show up and and be at their campus in time, that they want people on their campus trained for these issues. I don't, you know, I don't fault them for wanting that because they're wanting sure. to protect their children in that way. Um, I would counter with if you look at most of the school shootings that have taken place in the United States, they've happened in urban and suburban mm-hmm. areas. Yeah. So that's not necessarily the issue. Right. But I don't fault them for wanting to protect their children. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that this is either or it should have just been both. Sure. I I'm did my undergrad in physical education and health and I'm still a certified Oklahoma teacher. I've maintained my license. Um, I will say that, you know, the idea of guns in schools, I agree with representative Dunnington that I understand the desire to keep kids safe by having, by arming various school personnel, um, especially if there's not access to like real security guards or real law enforcement. But I do think that this is a little bit misguided. I don't think that the data backs up that this is a good a way to address the potential for school shootings. And I'll say too, as, as a teacher, um, as a, a certified Oklahoma teacher, I, this would make me want to be a teacher less. Can I just say, uh, we've, we've now like in the last two minutes, uh, Effie has mentioned that she is a lobbyist. I am. She is a teacher. I am. <laughs> uh, is there anything else that you do? No. Uh, to be fair, I've never been employed as a teacher. I did my undergrad. I did my teaching license. Did student teaching. All that fun stuff. Realized pretty quickly that and the, decided to become a the lobbyist. The ceiling for <laughs> teachers in Oklahoma is quite low, so <laughs> I chose a different career. I, I don't know if you noticed, but we we need certified teachers in Oklahoma right and now. And we just gave them a raise. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, a couple other education issues that I did want to hit on. Um, I put this on one because it's it's important, and I'll let you both enlighten me about this because uh, Representative Dunnington, you ran the bill, and um, for those of you uh, playing the home game, Effie is a lobbyist for like the food bank. Okay, that's true. Um, so. Uh, Nonprofits have lobbyists. Um, there was a bill, I, I don't remember the bill number, but there's a bill that just passed this either. year that's looking at changing how schools can provide leftover food 
to students that they're concerned don't have resources at home. Is that right? That's yeah. right. Yeah. So you guys educate all of us about what this is. So a, f- a few years ago, we uh, tag teamed on an effort for the initial round of this bill that would allow schools to donate unused, unopened food. So think of like unopened milk cartons or apples or stuff like that, um, that they could either donate that to a partner of the regional food bank or the community food bank or um, directly to kids. Teachers could decide how that could be distributed, whatever. My understanding, and I'll let you chime in here, my understanding is that this bill is to allow schools to start to donate um, basically like cafeteria food, like hot food, um, either in little packaged trays or whatever to the same type of idea. Um, I will say, you know, I've, I've worked on on nutrition policy for, for several years now, and this is an additional level of complexity for sure. Um, handling hot food that's been served is more complex, both with USDA's school food regulations, as well as the State Department of Education and the State Department of Health. Um, I think this is a well-intentioned bill. They're wanting to fight childhood hunger and help hungry kids. Um, I don't know on the implementation side how realistic it is going to be for schools to do this. Yeah, I I would just say I wouldn't have even known about this issue unless Effie came and said, (laughs) hey, have you ever thought about this issue? And I, you know, I had my kids were in public school. And I think in our initial conversations, I talked about how when I'd go to lunch with my kids, how much food got thrown away and how unnecessary that seemed. And uh, so it was really Effie's brainchild to bring it um, to our office, HD88, and say, you should look at running this bill. So we did with uh, Senator A.J. Griffin at Mm -hmm. the time. And, uh, man, I miss her in in the state Senate. She's not, like, gone. I liked that moment of silence. (laughs) It was, it was. Friend, friend, of the, friend of the show, Senator Griffin. Uh, she has did, not died. She has a different she's, job. She's, she's, yeah. she's doing very well at Paycom, but I really miss her in the legislature. Um, and we ran that bill together, and it was like the first bill signed by the governor that year. Mm-hmm. One of the things with that, though, was we changed policy. But, And I say this all the time. It doesn't matter what policy you change at the state level or at the federal level. If you don't have people that can educate on the policy change and help implement the policy change, it doesn't matter what you change. Mm -hmm. It's all just talking points for you or running whatever election that you're running. Where the rubber meets the road is the education and implementation. And for our bill, it, it was, it's two years old and it's slowly being implemented Mm -hmm. and education is coming out and now we're adding to it, which anytime you want to add to helping kids, Um, get fed and deal with food insecurity in our state I'm for that deal Mm -hmm. like I'm voting for that every time I hope with this if anything comes out of it it will help groups that are that are kind of wraparound services for that I hope it will help them to continue to educate and implement what we've already done and what this bill will do Mm -hmm. because the end result is what we all want Mm -hmm. deals with food insecurities but we can pass anything we want, and if nobody knows about it, it doesn't matter. Yep. So I'll, I'll say, too, just to plug for some stuff that's starting to move in Congress. Um, so the, the last farm bill passed in, in December during the lame duck session of Congress that deals with SNAP and, and a host of other federal nutrition programs. The, the second major piece of federal legislation that deals with childhood hunger specifically is the child nutrition reauthorization. This is the school breakfast program, school lunch, uh, WIC, summer feeding, the program that helps kids um, in the summertime have 
have access to food, as well as um, CACFP, which is a daycare and, and preschool type of food program. Um, that is just starting to move through Congress. I think the Senate Ag Committee, um, or Senate maybe Ed Committee, held their first hearing on it like earlier this week. So if, if you are somebody that cares about childhood nutrition, both at the state level, you can get behind this bill, or certainly talk to the school district in your area about what has already passed and what the needs are, um, and contact our members of Congress to let them know that you care about getting a good child nutrition reauthorization bill across the line at the federal level, too. Outstanding. Uh, last education issue. Uh, is this education tax credit thing, is that happening? I, you know, I, I don't even like to talk about this as an education issue. You and I have talked about this yeah. before. I've talked about it constituent chat a uh, number of times this session and before. This isn't an education bill. It's it's a tax bill. And so yes. <laughs> the, the bill is um, it, it creates an opportunity for uh, corporations to put money into something and get 75 cents back on the dollar that they put into. I mean, it's a tax shelter is what this bill is. It's not an education bill. It's just education was what they chose to put on the back end so they could tie a bow on it and say, you know, this is for homeless children in Oklahoma. It's not. This is for corporations in Oklahoma to park tax dollars and get 75 cents back on it. That's what this bill is for. Yes, I I agree with you. To play devil's advocate, so Leader Eccles, who's run the bill, which I think is, I mean, maybe I'm wrong and tell me if I'm wrong. I think the fact that this is Leader Eccles' bill is one of the reasons that's made it as far as it has because it's met, I feel like, fairly substantial resistance as it's gone through the process. Started at $60 million, now it's at $30 million. Been a lot of changes to it. His contention would be that this, yes, it's a tax bill, but it will end up with more dollars in public education. Would you, is that, do you think that's right or no? I, I don't know. I guess I don't. Okay. Sorry, Scott. <laughs> no, I think it's fine. <laughs> you hedged for a second and then just got right to it. Uh, he could still vote for me. No, because um, no, this isn't Eccles' bill anymore. His bill died. Oh, so, I didn't. Okay, I didn't yeah, realize that. This is the Senate palace intrigue. Yeah, this is the Senate version of it that only takes it to 10 million. But if you look at, I mean, this is, cut and paste legislation that right. the USA Today article that came out last week about cut and paste legislation that gets pushed by corporations all over the United States. That's what this is. They have this in Florida right. and their cap is $700 million right now. So this is legislation for corporations to park their tax dollars and get money back from the state on. It's not an education bill. So let's just call it what it is. Right. And, call it a tax bill. And the fact is, is corporations are going to look for places to park their money so they don't have sure. to pay taxes. Sure. That's what they do. So if it's not this one, it will be something else that comes down the line, which is what I always say. If we want to take care of our citizens and we want to invest in core services of government, you don't need to raise taxes more than they are now. You just need everyone that should be paying taxes to pay them. Sure. You know, there's a, I almost, I almost added this to the news roundup today and I, I thought we wouldn't have time, but there's a, there's a great piece in the Tulsa world today that looks at the Oklahoma budget and looks at the fact that there's like, it's like 15, 16 billion dollars that comes through the door. There's actually like 5.6 that the legislature gets to appropriate because of how much comes off the top and then how much goes back out the door in terms of exemptions and credits like you're talking about. Um, yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, it's a... a, a problem that we could address but man every one of those every one of those credits and exemptions has a uh, 
a paid lobbyist. Thanks, Effie. Um, that there is no tax credit that benefits <laughs> the food bank. Hey, look, on, on this bill in particular, right. everyone talks about positive tomorrows. Right. Everyone talks about it. positive tomorrows is a school that's in House District 88. Right. Susan Engel is the headmaster or, or principal or whatever her title is right. over that school and has done a phenomenal job with that school and with the students that come through there. And it's certainly needed. Um, but they use positive tomorrows as the reason to pass this bill. Positive tomorrows gets like 1% of what this is. Right. Mm-hmm. And the rest of it goes to private parochial, you know, religious schools around the state. It's not about education. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. I love that you just say it how it is. <laughs> All right. All right. Last up on our uh, agenda for today. So, um, you know, it's April 12th. Uh, Today's my mom's birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Mrs. Dunnington. Jane Dunnington. Hi, Jane. <laughs> Does she listen? No. Oh. She, my, my, <laughs> we had this conversation earlier about when you got your first cell phone. You said uh-huh. you were... Like in college. In college. I think I was the last group that made it all the way through high school without everybody having a cell phone. So I was like 24 and it was like a Nokia phone Mm -hmm. was my first phone that I got. I was in seminary and, you know, I'd made it all the way through college or whatever. My mother, um, who is 71 today, she got her first cell phone last year. Ooh, good for her. So Is she text you? 70 years. We just started texting and it's the weirdest thing ever to get a text message from my mom who's 70 and just started doing it last year. Yeah. So, but she's so proud. Like she is the, um, like junior high kid at birthday parties. Now, whenever people are taking pictures, we're kind of over, you know, like (laughs) birthday pictures, like, eh, you know, but my mom, She's like taking pictures with the cell phone, doing the whole thing. Yeah. I'm like, this is so strange. Do you get the, so. do, tell me if y'all's moms do this. Cause when my mom texts, she makes up acronyms. So she, she, well, she'll text me these very lengthy sentences that, but it's all acronyms. And cause she, she learned like TTYL and then she thought, <laughs> well, I'll just make up all of my own. So, and she also thinks that LOL means lots of love. So it's just, it's very confusing whenever we text. Yeah, we don't do emojis or any of that. Like it's yeah. full sentences from my mother uh-huh. right now. So. I don't, I don't. So my mom, she, she didn't do emojis and I don't get the acronyms. My mom though, and she doesn't, my parents don't listen to this show so I can say this. Uh, God bless my mom. I love her very much. But she texts exactly the way that she talks. Mm-hmm. And so what that means for my mom is like, I'll get a text from her. But it's a text that is formulated in a way, like, it's like we're in the middle of a conversation, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'll get this text that's like a very detailed thought about some random thing followed by a question as though she's responding to something that I have just said, except we haven't talked in like two days. Yeah. And so and, and so it takes me a minute to be like, I'm sorry, what? What is this in reference to? All right, look, let's <laughs> let's do a little let's do a little exercise here. While we're on video, let's all text our mom and see whose mom texts back first. And all you have to text them is hi mom. Okay. So I bet I'm gonna get something back that's like G T G S and I'm gonna say, What's that? And she's gonna say, Going to grocery store. My mom's gonna say, Have you been drinking? <laughs> all right, everybody sent. Okay. Done. All right. We Done. sent the hi mom. Let's see what we get. All right. Mom, my parents got rid of their home phone, mm-hmm. and I was like, wow, you still have a home phone? <laughs> so they got rid of their home phone, um, 
about six months ago, but my mom was so excited because she could make their home phone number her cell phone number. So yes. then she went on to explain to me. This is amazing. Well, she went on to explain to me like all of the process that it was for her cell phone to be their home phone number. And I was like, it's a whole new world. <laughs> okay. Our, Anybody have a text back from their mom yet? Uh, not, not yet, but well, I will. I, I will. Yeah. I'll keep everybody posted. All right. Last, we've only got the, we only got the representative for a couple more minutes. So I do want to get to one more thing. It is April 12th. Uh, constitutionally, we are supposed to have an education budget April 1st. We don't now. We only have twice ever, I think. Um, and uh, we haven't. Uh, what I have heard, I have heard that the majority in both the House and Senate have prepared a budget. They've looked at the governor's budget and that they are talking. But no one seems to know what the budget says. Sonny dies looking to happen here in about four weeks. Uh, do we have any insight on what the budget's going to look like? I guess my main question is Governor Stitt had asked for $200 million to go into savings beyond what's constitutionally mandated. Um, the legislature had showed some reticence for that. What do we think? Do we think we're going to get a budget anytime soon? And what do we think it's going to look like? Well, let's, let's be honest about the education budget. That seems to be more of a talking point anymore than it's ever been an actual like hard deadline. The only two times we've ever done it was the first year that they initiated it and last year when 30,000 teachers were in the building. And all of the other years, it's never happened. So that probably, if we're being honest with each other, needs to get changed. There shouldn't be a hard April 1st deadline on an education budget. It could be a hard June 1st deadline on an education budget. But the budget is getting put together as we speak. So to say that we're going to carve out the largest part of the budget, which is education spending, and do that a month and a half ahead of when the actual budget's going to go, it it keeps you from being able to build a budget that you need to be able to, to move and be nimble in. And I say that as a Democrat. Um, do we need to spend more money in education? Yes. But let's just be honest about when we're going to do it and why and not like hold fast to some specific date and then say, well, everybody hates educators. Cause I don't think that's the case. I do think the so. April 1st deadline seems like it's just a talking point to hold up sometimes to say, look how bad the legislature is at its job. Yeah. Well, it was instituted, right? Because at the time teacher contracts in Oklahoma were structured differently than they are now and so administrators needed to have that budget to know what they were going to be able to do for the next year. But we've changed the way the teacher contracts are done now. So there's really no, there's not a need for that. Yeah. So let's just move it back and so, stop making a talking point so that we can actually sit at the table and do what we really want to do, which is make sure we're putting more money in the formula and making sure that we're regionally um, competitive when it comes to teacher pay. Now, governor wanted to make us first in the region in teacher pay $1,200 would have done that except Texas raised their regional pay by $5,000. I see you and I raise you now. (laughs) Now we're back again. And, And the real fight now is you've got Senate Republicans that want to ensure five day a week school school days. You've got the house that wants $1,200 in teacher pay raise. And you got both that want more money put into the formula. Teachers are saying, we don't care about the first two. Well, we want some more money in the formula because we want smaller class sizes and we want our kids to have access to what they need educationally. We appreciate the raise last year and we appreciate the thought this year. But if you're going to prioritize any of those, more money in the classroom. So 
you got a bunch of different parties kind of talking about different things. I don't think we can do all of them um, and save $200 million. Right. Now, I would tell Governor Stitt this if he was sitting in the seat with us. I would say, Governor, it's really hard to put money in your savings account when you have holes in your roof. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyone that's thoughtful at all about the house that they live in would fix their roof first and make sure that it wasn't leaking on top of them before they started putting savings or putting money into a savings account. So as far as I'm concerned, let's take care of our problems now. Let's understand that there's a reason why we're in the place that we're in, but we can get out of it and let's be thoughtful about it and know that it's going to take time. It doesn't all have to be done right now, but if we commit to doing it over the next, you know, six to eight to 10 years, we can be in a really good position in the state of Oklahoma, but we can't with all the, you know, political rhetoric and hard and fast dates and blaming everyone for how we got into the mess and why we can't get out. No, I, I, I totally agree about the put the putting money in the savings account, right? Like it's like, it's great to say that you should save money, but like it, you shouldn't, you know, if your car needs three new tires, right? You can't put money in your savings account, right? Like you, um, part of the issue, I mean, I would say like part of the issue is that we need more money. And like one of my frustrations, and this is a political messaging more than it is anything else, you know, I mean, like, you know, I, I hear like, well, I mean, we just, we can't, I mean, we, we can't do everything. Like, well, yeah, we could, like the money is there. We could raise revenue, but no one talks about that. And I'm not saying you, Jason, like I know, like, but no one, like everyone acts like that's just like, well, no, that's not possible. No, it's hard for political reasons. It's hard for policy reasons. Like there's a lot of reasons, some good, some bad that it's hard, but like that is an option. Like that's one of the, to me, the biggest frustrations when people say like, well, you know, running the budget of the state of Oklahoma, just like your family budget at home. No, it's not right. I can't go to my boss at home and say, Hey boss, uh, I can't meet my expenses. So I need a $10,000 raise. Right. Like, yeah. You know what it's I mean? part of the scarcity mindset that you and Andy often talk about, that just coming into it with like, we have a very limited set of resources and this is how they are going to be distributed. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that the income tax rate in Oklahoma should be 25%, right? Like, I don't think anyone's arguing that. But like the idea that restoring like income taxes, for example, to where they have traditionally been in this state, is this just like oh my God, like that's not even something we can talk about. Like that frustrates me sometimes, even though I understand the political realities behind that. The other thing that I, and I think there's like, again, a lot of reasons, some political, some practical, why the budget ends up being the very last thing that the legislature does. But part of me is like... Some of that is practical though, because our budget year starts on July the 1st. Sure. And so we get the last set of numbers from you know the from our sources we get that mm-hmm. last set of numbers in may where they certify this is what we have brought in for 11 months this is what we think the last month will be and till you start the new budget and so this is what you're going to have to spend if you don't do it that way you're going to find yourself oftentimes in a situation where in november or december or january where you're having to supplement uh supplement budgets because you didn't either plan enough for it or you plan too much. You made the budget on bad data. Yeah. And so I have no problem with when we're doing it. I just want people to be more transparent, honest about it. So we talk about transparency 
in government all the time. It's like the, the real buzzword right now in Republican politics in Oklahoma is transparency and accountability. You know, it's all about that, but it's not right because we don't just tell us what the real numbers are and where you're going to spend it. And I think the public is smart enough to know that if they wanted to save $200 million for a future date that they're not sure they'll ever see, or if it'll get spent on their children or grandchildren, uh, or if it'll get spent on a cola that helps them to be able to, you know, buy groceries or, you know, put $5 in a birthday card for their grandchild. I think they're going to choose that, but let people have the information. So if we really want to be transparent, let's actually really be transparent and do it that way. And I think we'll have a good product. I like it. I think that is a, I think it's a great spot to leave it. Actually. Uh, we really appreciate both of you guys, uh, being on the show this week. Um, couple of announcements we have coming, coming up on May 4th, uh, a night to remember. This is our, uh, this is our main fundraiser for the first half of the year. This is the prom. So if you went to prom in high school, if you didn't go to prom in high school, or if you went and had a bad time, this is your chance to uh, make it up. Uh, the booze will be better. The venue will be better. Um, and I mean, I don't know who you went to high school with, but the people are going to be pretty awesome too. So go to uh, letsfixthisok.org uh, slash prom and make sure you get your tickets because they are going fast. Next up uh, is our Capitol Day on April 23rd. Uh, if you've never been to the Capitol um, and it intimidates you a little bit, come meet us up there and uh, we'll take you. We'll take you to meet your state representative or uh, if we don't know them, we'll take you to meet somebody else's and they can introduce you. Um, but uh, it's, it's really, it's a great time. It's a great way to see the Capitol for the first time it's a lot of fun uh april 23rd we certainly hope to see you there and then for those people who are interested in healthcare, oklahoma policy institute is holding a rally at the capitol on april 24th we will hear more from them next week we'll have some guests from them on the show talking about a major push that they are making for medicaid expansion sooner care expansion here in oklahoma so that brings us to the end of this episode thank you so much to uh representative dunnington and to effie craven uh literally could not have done it without you so appreciate your time I mean, and you for could you. have but it wouldn't have been as interesting it's true and no one would no one would listen thanks right? for having no us. one no one wants that right so uh don't forget to subscribe and rate let's pod this on apple podcasts because that helps other people discover us it helps us uh, become better informed um remember that you can connect with us on twitter and instagram at let's fix this okay uh i am at sc melson andy is at andy okc jason you are at j dunnington at Jay Dunnington and Effie. At Effie Craven. I can tell you they are both great follows. You absolutely should uh, follow them on Twitter. You can uh, like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash okay. Our website is letsfixthisok.org, and there you can sign up for our newsletter, read our blog, find resources and details about upcoming events. You can also make a donation. Please do that. Or sign up to sponsor a podcast episode, which would be awesome. So our podcast is edited and produced by me and Andy and let's pod this as a member of the mostly harmless media network. Our theme music is provided by the sugar free all stars and let's fix. This is a nonpartisan nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with their government. We encourage you to get involved in any way that you can. And remember who makes decisions. People who show up. That's right. Decisions are made by those who show up. Thanks everybody.